Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mark Mahalovic pulled into his driveway after a business trip to Cincinnati, Ohio. He had just gotten back to his home in Bay Village, just west of Cleveland in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, and was probably so thankful to be back home, as we all are after some time away. Perhaps thinking about sleeping in his own bed, having a nice dinner with his family, hearing about his son's and his daughter's day at school, and finally being able to relax. But the scene he walked into was the furthest thing from the calm and relaxing evening he likely had envisioned. When he walked into his home around 5.30 p.m. on October 27, 1989, he found his wife frantic. Their 10-year-old daughter had never returned home from school that day. His wife went to file a police report at the local station, a station that she didn't realize at the time was right across the street from the last place their daughter Amy had been seen alive. And Mark took off, flashlight in hand, and still dressed in his business attire, searching desperately for his little girl in the areas around their home and in their neighborhood. Unfortunately, he did not find his daughter in the woods searching for one of the animals that she loved so much, nor did he find her at a friend's house. He never got to feel that flood of relief when you find your child safe and you chuckle to yourself at how much you overreacted at what was merely a miscommunication. Mark Mahalovic, with Margaret, his wife, and his son Jason, only got to feel the opposite emotions. Anxiety, dread, and grief. Grief that you couldn't imagine. And now, 30 years later, the perpetrator of the crimes we will talk about today is still out there, still harboring the secrets of what he did that day in October 1989, while Mark Mahalovic's daughter is buried in Highland Memorial Park in Wisconsin. This is the case of Amy Renee Mahalovic. Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. 
We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning these cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases, because as these families know, conversations help to keep their missing family members in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Merry Christmas, you guys. I know. Merry Christmas, Maggie. Did you have a good one? I did. I had a really great time just going home and being with my family. And It's a lot of traveling for us, but it's good. Yeah. Plus getting to open all the presents. And all the food. I know. Hey, you guys, speaking of presents, uh, Maggie and I have a little gift that, you know, we would love to get from you. So if you really want to give us the best Christmas present ever, we would really appreciate it if you would give us a five-star rating and review. I mean, I would be super grateful. Me too. Now, Maggie, today's case is a super unique one because even though it's been 30 years since Amy Maholovic disappeared, the case is actually the longest active investigation in FBI history and has never been considered a cold case, even after 30 years. So, um, Anthony and I actually are getting ready to fly out to Washington, D.C., and we get to tour the FBI building while we're there. Oh, that's exciting. Maybe you can ask them about yeah. Amy's case yeah. since it's still active. Well, I guess they couldn't tell you anything. Yeah, It'd we be like to get like a big background security clearance. And all that's that. really yeah. cool. Well, I am happy to report that investigators in this particular case continue to follow up on, because it's an active case, every tip and every lead that still actually comes in every month about this case, which I was shocked to hear. But that means that if anything in today's episode sparks a memory gives pause or makes you reflect, we urge you to report that feeling. We will give the contact information at the end of this episode and on our Facebook page. Yes. So let me just share with you first, Maggie, some pictures of this precious little girl. That's her. And we're going to post these on Facebook as well, on Twitter, on Instagram, of Amy Mihalovic. Now, how would you describe her sweet little face? So she looks like the just cutest little kid that you would ever imagine, just like she was straight out of like the late 80s, mm-hmm. like mid 80s era. She's got a cute little side ponytail. She just looks so sweet. Did you ever rock the side ponytail? I still rock a side oh, ponytail. Oh, because it's in. Yeah. I know. She's so cute and she's got like these little dimples and just. I mean, she just looks like she would be... Just a sweetheart. Yes. And her cross necklace, like that. Oh. Yeah. Just a cutie. Absolutely. From everything I read, Maggie, Amy was vivacious. She had lots of friends. She was fiercely independent and this go-getter. And her father, in one of the interviews that I saw, he basically said, in not so many words, like, I dare you to try to do something for her because she would prove you wrong that she could do it herself instead. And she was super smart. She was in the gifted program at Bay Middle School where she attended. She was in fifth grade. And so, I mean, she was just, not only was she precious, right, when you're looking at her, but she was, 
like all of these positive adjectives, you know, to describe her. Like the perfect student, the perfect little girl. Right, exactly. Well, at 7.20 a.m. on October 27th, 1989, Amy told her mother that she would be home a little bit later after school because she would be in, and this is according to a timeline provided by an article for Fox 8 Cleveland, auditioning for the fifth grade choir. And right after she told her mom that, she promptly rode away on her blue bike, as she always did, on her way to school. Now, Maggie, this story this week it really hits home for me for two reasons number one you know my daughter she is 10 yeah all of these like descriptive words remind me of her i mean so smart like a go-getter yeah and so like that's why i i tear up even when i'm I'm reading about this case because I just keep thinking of my daughter and I can totally relate to these parents, you know, and this fierce independence. I mean, that is exactly the way my daughter is. I mean, she wants to do it all herself and she feels like she's already an adult. But the second reason why it hits home for me is because Amy in 1989 was 10 years old. In 1989... I was 10 years old. And so it's like I can relate to it on, on both yeah, sides. on all these different levels because you know, I think about my own childhood and even though I didn't ride a bike to school and then back home because my school was too far away, I rode the bus, but I mean, I would ride my bike all along the road. And this was like a road that was right next to the interstate. So it's not oh, like it was like little, this country yeah. road. I mean, we were kind of in the country cuz it was like this really small town. But But, like, across a fence, across a field is the interstate. And so I would ride my bike by myself. I mean, and I felt like I was, you know, as a kid, you feel like you're going really far away, even though it's not really far. But I felt like I was going so far. And I remember just feeling, like, this sense of, like, oh, my goodness. I'm, like, that's right. I'm, like, this responsible adult, even though I was only 10. Well, at school that day, Amy's class had a special guest. He was then a rookie cop, but he is now the Bay Village police chief. So he's been associated with this case from the beginning until now. And that man's name is Mark Spetzel. When the officer came to Amy's class that day, Maggie, he talked about stranger danger. In fact, a lot of the messages, even back in the late 1980s, was to be suspicious of an adult who's asking for help. From a child. For example, you know, be suspicious if an adult comes to you and says, hey, can you help me look for a lost puppy? Or do you want to go play games at an arcade? Or someone saying, your mom has been hurt. We need you to come and help us. And especially to stay away from strangers' vehicles. The message was that it's okay to say no, even if you feel like it's bad manners. And I feel like that's a super important message. Well, it was then and today. And that's the message that Amy heard that very day at school did you ever hear that like when you were so your mom? um amy is a little older than me i was like you know the mid 90s baby but um like when i was in school and her age but my mom did always read me a book that i'm pretty sure was my brother's so it would have been right around this time but it was called never talk to strangers and it was like these animals and they basically 
we're, we're approaching this little girl and like, hey, your mom really needs you or whatever. And it would be like, but never talk to strangers. Like it kept repeating that, like never talk to strangers. And like that book has stuck with me. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like we've heard this message and I looked it up actually to see when like the stranger danger message became big. And it said it went all the way back to the 60s. Oh, wow. Right. Which I didn't realize. But I mean, this is very much in the public consciousness that that children are often victims because they're so trusting because right and they're taught yeah they're they're not thinking oh somebody's going to do some horrible thing to me and then you know they've been taught I have to be polite right we put that into so many kids heads like you have to be kind especially to an adult right you don't want your child to ever be rude especially to an adult who's in your company but then at what point does that then carry over that it puts them in danger instead of them. And that's a hard line. Like, I don't even know where to tell my own daughter, you know, at this point you can be nice, but then at this point you can be rude. Yeah. That's kind of like I've seen on social media, the posts with moms that's like around the holidays, they're not going to force their kid. Cause you know, like you're like great, great, great uncle that you haven't ever met. And then like you're expected to give him like a hug and it's just kind of awkward when you're that little age and like a lot of parents I've seen are saying things like they won't ever force their child to like show affection to someone that they wouldn't feel that affection for right that personal touch yeah so I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand like that fine line between being polite and being safe absolutely I I couldn't agree more and What's interesting is when I was reading the story, this message of stranger danger from the officer who showed up at her school that day, it wasn't the first time that she had heard that message. In fact, her mother, Margaret Mihaljevic, she stated in interviews that she had always stressed to Amy to stay away from strangers' cars, asking for directions, because that's, you know, a big thing if somebody pulls up and they say, hey, can you come over here and then tell me how to get to whatever? And of course, you know, you think because somebody's in a car, they're not standing up, they can't easily you know grab you oh it's safe to go near it and Margaret was like no I taught Amy from a young age don't even go close to strangers cars and that Amy knew to beware of adults that she didn't know personally yet at 204 when classes dismissed at the middle school Amy didn't go to the choir audition that she had told her mother about Instead, she left on foot, leaving her bike parked in the bike rack at the school and walked a quarter mile to the Bay Village Square shopping center. And she had to have felt somewhat safe at this point because here at the shopping center, there are several of her classmates hanging around, literally a police station right across the street. I mean, you could see it. So if you were going to feel safe anywhere, it's in the middle of the day in a crowded public place that's right next to a police station. Well, at 2.15, two witnesses, both 10-year-old classmates of Amy's, say that they saw her at the shopping center with a man. Now, neither of them thought anything of it. She was walking between the barbershop and the Baskin Robbins at the shopping center for a bit. And they remember, and this is so just like a 10-year-old would, she was swinging around the poles outside of the ice cream shop, yeah, you know, like, her like, doing that. like wasting time, you know, just twirling around. And the two young children who saw her, even though they saw her with this man, again, they didn't think anything of it because these two young children, they had no idea what Amy's father looked like. And because when Amy saw this man and there was some sort of conversation that went on, 
And the man put his hand either on her shoulder or on her lower back. Different accounts said different things. And they saw her walking towards the parking lot with this guy. I mean, there was no commotion. She didn't scream. It was normal. Right. She didn't fight. So they thought, well, maybe that is Amy's father, right? And he came to pick her up here, and now she's riding with him. And even according to an article by Drew Schofield, a barbershop employee, because remember she's walking between the barbershop and Baskin Robbins, this employee recalls literally nothing unusual outside of the shop that day. And that's significant because it means that as the employee in fact stated, there was quote, no screaming, no struggling. So you would think, you know, if, if this is some like odd stranger who she had never spoken to never knew she would scream or when somebody's run. right when some and especially she just heard that day at school the stranger danger. the stranger danger she had heard this message from her mom don't go with strangers so we know now though that somewhere between 2:20 and 2:30 p.m. the abduction of Amy Mahalovic occurred in that very open very public and seemingly very safe shopping center. Now, Maggie, every day when Amy got home from school, she would she always got home alone and first. But she would call her mom at work at the Trading Times magazine to let her know that she made it safely. I mean, I. I can remember doing that even when I was in college. Like, my mom would be like, okay. Call me when you get right, here. Right, right. Or even, like, if I visit with my dad, he'll be like, call me when you get home so I know you made it safe. Well, she did that every day because, remember, she's 10 and she got home alone. And, again, I think that's it's probably very common even today, but I know it was super common when I was younger. Like, my mom worked. And when you have both parents who work, a lot of kids have to ride home alone i think the term was latchkey kids yeah, but that like was a very typical 80s generation yep thing. yep because i would ride the bus home i'd let myself in i'd lock the door and i wouldn't open it until my mom got home well the same was true for amy until her brother would get home so she would get home first close the door call her mom to let her know that she had made it in safe and just stay quiet until her mom got home. Well, remember, Amy's mom, Margaret, wouldn't have worried immediately about Amy, you know, not being home because Amy had told her she'd be getting home a little bit later than normal because she was going to that choir audition. But when Amy's brother, Jason, got home at 310, remember, school let out around 204, so about an hour later, Amy wasn't home yet. He called his mom to let her know, right, hey, Amy's not here. Well, at 3.30, Margaret did receive a call from Amy. In hindsight, we know that Amy's abductor had allowed Amy to call her mom, per usual. And we have to be under the assumption that at this point, Amy herself had no idea that she was in danger because her mom didn't sense any fear in Amy's voice when she talked to her. I mean, it was a very normal conversation. And in fact, when Margaret received the call, she assumed that Amy was calling her from home. So this would mean that Amy's abductor knew her daily routine, though. Or at least that she said... Oh, I need to call my mom. Right. I always call her every day. I need to let her know that I'm safe. She'll get worried if I don't. And he had allowed her to call. And we know um, the fact that... 
Amy's mom wasn't necessarily concerned thinking Amy was at home. And that was according to an FBI special agent, Vicki Anderson, who had let us know that. So as far as Amy's mom is concerned, you know, she's still at work. Amy's at home. She's safe. She's called me to let me know. Because remember, this was pre-cell phone. So Amy's mom would not have had something that would show up. like Location. Or exactly you know, something like that. Right. So when Margaret got home and you wouldn't know. From what number? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're no, saying? Like caller ID. Right. No. So it, all she knows is she's getting a call at work. Right. From Amy. Right. So when Margaret got home herself at 530, this was right before her husband, Mark, returned from his business trip and found that Amy was not there. She was in tears. Assuming the worst... As to me, it would be natural to do. Margaret called everyone she could think of. She called neighbors. She called friends. She even went by the school. And when she got there, she saw Amy's blue bike that she had ridden to school on that very morning still parked there. And that's when she knew her fears were valid. And I feel like that's something, too, with parents. There's this, obviously, we feel fear about everything literally but I think especially with women we'll have this sense of dread or this fear and then we talk ourselves out of it we're like oh I'm just overreacting because I feel like there's so much in our culture that says that like oh women overreact about these things like pounded into us I'm just overreacting right and so when she's feeling this fear about Amy being missing it's not until she actually sees the bike that she feels like there's some sort of real. right validation for her feelings. At 5.58 p.m., Margaret Mihaljevic reported Amy missing at the Bay Village Police Department. According to the Channel 19 News article by Nicole Versansky, the police chief at the time, Bill Garreau, had just gotten off work when he received the call. According to that article, Garreau had plans that night to attend a murder mystery party. He never made it to that party because it was another mystery more pressing. The disappearance in this quaint small town of a little girl. By the next day, October 28th, the FBI was involved and provided another 50 agents to search for Amy. In their search and inquiries, a story began to emerge about where Amy could be. Amy had told a friend that day before she went to the Bay Village shopping plaza after school that she was going there to meet someone. This man she was to meet had called Amy at her house. So, Maggie, he knew her home number, which, again, like back then, you're not, I mean, you did have the yellow pages, and right, that you could look somebody up in. But it's not like you had a list of contacts on your phone. Right. So he knew her home number, and I think it's likely that he knew that she would be home alone, and home first because obviously some grown man who's trying to lure a child wouldn't call and then ask an adult to speak to the child on the phone, right? So he had to have known. Well, he called Amy at her home and on the phone, he told Amy that her mother, Margaret, had been promoted at work, which was a true statement and that he needed to choose a present to congratulate Margaret, but that he would need help picking it out. According to Officer Mark Spetzel, he even offered to give Amy money of her own to get herself something for this kind favor 
of helping him. Well, luckily, Amy didn't keep this meeting a secret, and she had told one of her friends. And it's only because of that, because of her not keeping the secret. And let me tell you out there, please tell your children, if an adult who is not a parent tells your child to keep a secret you need to teach your child to tell you immediately that secret because that's what I've taught my daughter I mean I've said listen if anybody says hey don't tell anybody about this you need to tell you need to tell me about it but luckily like I said Amy didn't keep it a secret and it's only because of that that we know why Amy didn't you know, the choir did a scream, scream, right, and went willingly with this man. And this is so terrifying to me that this man would prey upon the love a child had for her mother to carry out this horrible crime. And Amy's mother even said in an interview that the only reason... Amy would have made an exception to all the lessons that she had taught her about not going with strangers was, quote, trying to please me. And that, quote, unfortunately, that love, that trust, that caring was her downfall. And I'm telling you, Maggie, when you hear Amy's mom say those words, you feel the personal guilt that she is unfairly placing on herself. Like she's feeling like it is, you know, her fault because Amy would have only done this for her. For her. Oh, and it that's so my sad heart to me. For her. Oh, absolutely. Because I can't imagine as a mom or as a parent knowing that your child was doing something out of love for you that could have resulted in and that did result, result in her death. Right. And that, oh, I can't imagine that not only that your child missing and the fear and anxiety that you have, but then finding out that she left with a stranger and you feeling like it's because of you that she did. Now, because Amy had told what the man had asked her to keep a secret, we know that the man she went to meet, the one that was seen by Amy's classmates, is somehow related to her disappearance. But these young classmates were then asked to remember literally everything that they could about the man that they saw Amy with. Now, the problem, Maggie, is that even in the best case, Eyewitness testimony is not entirely accurate. I watched a television special. I can't remember what channel it was on, but it was years ago where students were in this college classroom in an auditorium and this man came in and he stole something like a bag off of the professor's desk. So literally everyone in this auditorium is staring at the professor because the professor was teaching and saw the person come in, steal something off the front desk. Well, then the students were asked to describe the person who had done the crime and the descriptions all over the place. And not only that, but there's a reason why if you witness a crime, they tell you don't talk to anybody else who also witnessed the crime because your memories are so fragile. You could see something and you could think, those blue eyes, I'm never going to get that out of my mind. And then all of a sudden, somebody else starts talking about it and they say, I will never forget how green her eyes were. And immediately you start questioning your own recollections and you're like, wait, were they green, right? Or were they blue? And you start questioning yourself. In Amy's case, we're 
you know, we're talking about not just kids who are trying to recall what this man looked like, but trying to recall a man who they didn't even think committed a crime. Right in that special that I saw, they they clearly saw somebody commit a crime. So in those instances, because it's something out of the ordinary, your mind automatically... You pay more attention. Right, exactly. Well, in this case, they just thought it was a random guy who was with Amy. And now they're being asked to remember literally every single nitty-gritty detail about this person. And it's somebody who they wouldn't have necessarily been paying the closest of attention to it would be like if I saw one of my students talking in the hallway to somebody and having a friendly conversation I wouldn't give it a second glance I would just keep on walking down the hallway and if somebody came to me the next day or two days later and then they say okay we have to compose a sketch of what the person looked like who your student was talking to there's no way no way no way that I would be able to do that Now, the sketches that did result from those interviews with the children are fairly similar, even though one remembered glasses and the other one didn't. Maggie, let me show you those pictures. Now, how would you describe, and again, we'll post these on our Facebook page, how would you describe the sketches? So you're correct. Both of them do look very similar. Like the one just looks like he took his glasses off and, you know, the other one he has them on, but he looks like literally every white male that you would meet in the 1980s like <laughs> any white male with shaggy hair yeah any with a head full of hair that's it uh, average looking face yes i mean i don't think he necessarily looks mean but no. he doesn't look for it he looks average yeah average. there's nothing special no identifying marks nothing about the face that would necessarily stand out and today law enforcement actually urges us not to rule anyone in or out because of those sketches. After all, again, like we were just talking about, recalling nitty-gritty details about someone you gave no second thought to is next to impossible. So law enforcement is like, don't see these pictures and be like, oh, well, you know, the other details sounded like this one person, but he doesn't look anything like that. So don't rule anybody in because of that or out because of that. What we do know about the perpetrator is that he was bold and likely comfortable. He was bold enough to coax Amy out to a public location within yards of the police station and to walk away with her in broad daylight and he was comfortable enough in Bay Village that he knew the location knew where to suggest for them to meet he knew where the school was so he had to have known it was within walking distance and he knew enough about Amy remember we talked about earlier knowing that she got home alone first he also knew something about her mom Margaret because he knew that she had gotten a promotion at work but he wasn't well known enough that people at the shopping center would recognize him so it's almost perfect he knows enough about her but people don't know enough about him exactly perfect storm you need parts o'reilly auto parts has parts need them fast we've got fast no matter what you need we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it product availability just one part that makes o'reilly stand apart the professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. While the police have never stopped investigating this case, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, right, this is a, an active case. It has never been a cold case. In the early days, law enforcement pulled double duty, if not triple duty. A lot of the sources that I looked at stated that the police and the FBI worked 12 to 16 hours a day to find Amy. According to an article by Drew Schofield, quote, in the early days of the case, investigators had help from the Cuyahoga Regional Information Service, a system of law enforcement computers linked together from across the county and the country. The technology at the time, while advanced, was strained by the amount of information processed through it. The system was designed to handle around a thousand inquiries per case and had already surpassed the limit, end quote. And that was in the early days. They'd already surpassed that many inquiries about the case coming in. Does every case get this amount of attention? You know, I... Or was Amy's case kind of special? Because I feel like FBI got involved very quickly with her case. They did get involved quickly, and I wasn't aware until we started doing a lot of research for the cold cases, how often the FBI actually does get involved with missing person cases. Because I I guess in my mind, I always pictured like the movies and FBI only gets involved in like special things, espionage yeah. or something like that. But they're involved. They do a lot of work behind the scenes that we don't even, we don't even recognize. We don't even realize. Now, Amy's case did get a lot more attention than some of the cases that we'll cover on the show. Other sources that I read, like the article entitled, quote, Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic, The Missing Pieces and a Killer on the Run, that was published by Channel 19 News, they cited Chief Spetzel, and he said, quote, There were things we did back in the day, investigative-wise, that had never been done before. That they used behavioral scientists to create the suspect profile. That they used not only polygraphs, which I think is pretty ordinary, but also hypnosis wow. and even truth serums. Sounds very Harry Potter. It I didn't really know does. There was such yeah. a thing as the truth Tell serum. us the truth now. Amy's case, and this is what I was saying a second ago, it did get national news coverage. Amy's mother appeared on Sally Jesse Raphael on a three part episode on the Oprah Winfrey Show and on America's Most Wanted. And a few days after Amy's abduction on Halloween, noticeably fewer children were in the streets. Parents were more cautious. The fear in the community was palpable. Amy's parents, Mark and Margaret, lived in this incomprehensible unknown of having a missing child and no information. The longing and yet the dwindling hope for 105 days until on February 8th, 1990, 106 days after her abduction and disappearance, a jogger was running down an extremely rural road, County Road 1181 in Ashland County, Ohio, about 50 miles southwest of Bay Village, so quite a ways away, and saw something that nobody should ever have to see. The jogger spotted the body of a 10-year-old girl 
who had been stabbed to death. Oh, no. Based upon the details I was able to find, Amy had been stabbed twice in the neck and then had been hit in the head with a blunt object. According to Ashland County Deputy Chief Carl Reichert, her body was decomposed, so it appeared that she had been there a while. She was dressed in the same clothing as what she had been wearing the last time she was seen, minus turquoise horsehead earrings, black ankle boots, and a black leather binder. The FBI posted images of these items and asked for the items or any information about them to be passed along to them. Chief Spitzel believes that, and this is sad, but it's kind of a customary with crimes like this, that the perpetrator might have kept the items. Like a trophy. Exactly, as a souvenir, and that the items could still be in the possession of the person who did this. So let me take a moment to show you, Maggie, the photographs of the missing items and describe them to you listeners, and we will post these on our Facebook page. The first image is of turquoise horsehead earrings. Now, you'll see when you guys look at the images on our Facebook page, um, these are artist renderings of the earrings, but they fit on the lobe of the ear. Yeah, they're not dangling. Right. And they are made of turquoise. The second image, also an artist rendering of the boots that she had on. How would you describe those, Maggie? Like... Just, you know, everyday black ankle boot with, like, studs along the side. And I'm assuming that's laces running there with fur down in the, like, ankle part of the boot. And then the final picture is of a binder that she had been carrying. And listeners, I want you to pay attention to the details of these items, especially because the police believe the perpetrator may have kept them. You may have seen them in the home of the person who committed these crimes. Look closely at the picture of the turquoise horsehead earrings. Take a longer look at the black children's boots with silver buttons from ankle down to the toe and really analyze this black binder that Maggie's looking at right now that Amy's father had given her. This was a gift from his own work. And so it was not a common item. Do you want to describe the clasp? I feel to like them? this would be like if I saw this after seeing this picture, I would easily be able to like link the two because it literally says on it best in class and has like a silver or maybe bronze um, buckle on it that looks like it would, it would require a key to open. I mean, it's like really nice for someone Amy's age to be carrying. Like, I feel like it's very easily distinguishable. Yes, and because he was given this by his work, this isn't something you could just go buy at, you know, Kmart or Walmart or something like that. So, I easily identifiable items. Police say that the abductor also, in addition to perhaps having these items in his possession still, is also likely to be familiar not only with Bay Village, as I mentioned earlier before, but also with Ashland County, Ohio, where the body was found. They believe so because, as mentioned on a blog that I read, the road where Amy's body was found was so off the beaten path that this blog said nobody would ever just stumble upon it. So you almost have to know exactly where Where you're you're going going. Mm -hmm, to find this road. 
Former FBI agent Phil Torsney suspects that Amy was taken out of Bay Village right after her abduction. Due to Bay Village being such a small and close-knit community, not much goes on there without somebody noticing something. Torsney has noted that they, quote, still pursue that connection, end quote, between the two communities because the person seemed to know about the goings-on in Bay Village and knew Ashland County enough to find this road, where, as we just said, you basically have to know where you're going in order to find it. So authorities strongly believe that the killer is tied to both. Now, Amy's body was found by that jogger in this field. How would you describe the field that you see, Maggie? What do you notice about it? Um... It is like on, like they said, a road that you just wouldn't like be driving down. It's not like a highly traveled road. It looks like it just goes through someone's farm where they have like crops with like dead, maybe corn or something. Right. It's And it's not, I mean, from where they're standing, they're not very far off the road. No, not at all. And to me, it's a lot flatter and more open than what originally I had pictured. I mean, I would, I guess in my head, when I was thinking of a field and country road, I think of taller crops because there's a lot of tobacco and or like corn. corn. So here though, it, it again, it's kind of flat, but I mean, I guess I should have suspected something like that since the jogger was able to see her just by running by. But was this area really so rural that nobody had seen Amy's body there in the previous three and a half months? Because again, you you would easily be able to see something on the side of the Especially road. Especially if you were like the farmer and you were working there because it looks like the land had been previously plowed. Right, it does. And the jogger who found Amy's body swore that Amy had not been there the day before. But the decomposition, and from what I read on other websites, the sapling seeds that were found on her clothing indicated that she had been there the whole time. Regardless of whether Amy's body had been there the entire time or had just been placed there more recently, law enforcement does believe that Amy was murdered elsewhere, not in this field. Phil Torsney stated, quote, somewhere there's a crime scene. It's a vehicle, a house. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not even going to guess, but somewhere. There's some places we're looking at, re-looking at, with forensics, so that maybe we could identify the scene, end quote. And some of those places, per this FBI agent, are located in Ashland County. But just because law enforcement didn't have a crime scene does not mean that they had nothing to go on. Specifically, police were able to collect some evidence from Amy's body. They found three hairs that did not belong to Amy nor to her family, but the evidence also presents part of the problem. See, Maggie, in my naive and ignorant mind, I guess I just lumped all DNA evidence into one big category, but there are different kinds of DNA evidence. The more you know. Exactly, the more you know. In most other cases that we discuss, we have blood from the victim or from the perpetrator, which is nuclear DNA. What evidence we have in Amy's case, so hairs in this case, but it could be hairs or bones, is mitochondrial DNA. 
So I mentioned there's a problem and here's what it is. DNA technology is not advanced enough yet to identify Amy's killer from mitochondrial DNA. And Chief Spatzel has noted that officers have to be super selective about the way the hairs are used because, you know, we don't want to use it all up. And then the technology is advanced enough, but there's nothing left to test. One of the reporters I mentioned previously, Drew Schofield, noted that about a year after Amy was found, a witness came forward with information that around 13 hours before Amy's body was found by the jogger, they spotted a 20 to 30 year old male near that area of the field who was driving a blue hatchback car with the hatchback open. From that report, we have another sketch. Now I'm gonna show Maggie this one. Now what would you say about this one compared to the other ones? If you could see my face right now, you would see I'm a little confused because he looks completely different from the previous two sketches. This guy has dark hair. The other one was kind of light. His hair is curly. It's a lot shorter. He has distinctive eyebrows. His eyes are a lot darker. Um, he's got a really defined cheekbone. So the complete opposite of the first two photos. Exactly. And Maggie is so right. This is far different from those first sketches. The fact that it is so different can make you feel almost paralyzed, like you're making no progress. All of this waiting and the lack of capture took a toll on the family. Amy's mother, Margaret, died in 2001. Oh my God, that's so sad. Her husband said that she was never able to get over Amy's abduction and subsequent murder. And I, I think as a mom, we feel like we should always somehow be able to sense when our child is in trouble, to just feel it in our core, but of course that it isn't true. And the person who did this, they didn't just take an innocent 10-year-old Amy out of this world. He took something from her mother too. I am sure that she continuously wondered, what if I hadn't gotten that promotion? Would Amy still be here? He made Amy's mother blame herself for the unimaginable pain that he caused. I'm not a fan of this guy. No. For years, the police tried to keep as much evidence secret from the public for the purpose of knowing, you know, if somebody came forward with information, that they could quickly identify the veracity of the person's statements because it wouldn't be public knowledge. And a lot of cases do that. However, when over a decade passed with still no arrests, the police released further information about what else they found in that field and on Amy. Near her body, police located this unique avocado green curtain. Because of its unique nature, again, listeners, I want you to take a closer look to see if there is any recognition. And Maggie, let me show it to you. I have one that's close up where you can kind of see the design and then another to give perspective for the size. So Maggie, what do you notice about those pictures? Again, I feel like this would be something that's easily identifiable. How many people have this color green curtain in their home? Most people, you know, you choose a neutral color curtain, but there's like some stitching around the top. It's a very big curtain. This is like the size of curtain we would use in my home and we have like really big windows. They're really tall. 
Right, and there's a pattern in the fabric, as Maggie mentioned. Like waves. And, yeah, and that's led a lot of people to feel like this is a homemade curtain that's made out of like a bed covering, maybe. And you can even see the hoops on the top. They're not exactly the even. same, right, the, the same evenness in terms of where they're placed. And there's one that's sewn on the front, it looks like, and the rest on the back. So homemade and because of the size of it as maggie mentioned officers have wondered this could be a curtain to cover a large window as maggie said or even a doorway right so if you have i hadn't thought of that but mm -hmm. yeah that looks like the perfect size but as maggie mentioned it just takes because it's so unique the right person to see it and remember a curtain like this one going missing in or around 1989 to break this case open this curtain they found had hair on it as well but pet hair pet hair that matched the Mahalovic dog, which means that the curtain may have been used to wrap around Amy's body and the pet hair have been transferred from Amy's clothing to the blanket. I identify with that because we have three dogs and I feel like I eat, breathe, sleep in dog hair, even though I vacuum almost every day. So that is easily right. transferable. Right. So Maggie, I want this week to be different. I don't want us to focus at the end of the episode on potential suspects, and there are several. Instead, I want us to focus on the evidence, getting it out there and hoping that someone, somewhere, sees it and it triggers something. And do not feel like what you recall is insignificant. In fact, the FBI has asked that anyone who remembers and knew Amy's mother, Margaret McNulty Mihaljevic, to come forward with information, even if it does seem insignificant, any strange detail or conversation that they may have overheard. Chief Spitzel said, quote, trust us, we get tips where people say, I didn't recall 29 years ago and I feel weird calling now. That's okay. That happens all the time, end quote. While there is evidence in this case, there's also so much we still do not know. Blanks that someone or multiple people out there can help to fill in. What I do know is how easy it is in this world, even if we think we're being savvy and protecting ourselves, for someone to find out information about us. For Amy, the man knew her routine of arriving home alone first. He knew her phone number, which we at least believe she had written down in a visitor log at the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. He knew what she looked like, enough to recognize her at the shopping plaza. And he knew, again, the distance between the school and the shopping plaza to know it was within walking distance. And how many times have you ever done that? Because I know Rodney and I, we stayed at a condo at the beach last year and we signed a book that was left in the room for the, all the visitors to leave notes. And now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, you know, now these people know my name. They know at least what town I live in. So now I'm creeped out and I'm like thinking back about every place I've like, you know, some stores will be like, leave your number and your email and we'll send you a discount for your birthday. And, and we like, do. Okay, now people know my email and now they know my number. Or how many times in passing conversation do you mention where you work? or other personal information. These scraps of information add up. Luckily for us, just the same as the scraps add up about our own lives, they also add up about a description of what FBI profilers have been able to piece together concerning our perpetrator in Amy's case. 
According to an article by Eric Tricky in Cleveland Magazine, the killer likely had trouble with normal social relationships and came off to people as strange. He was probably not in a long-term relationship, but could have lived with family at the time. We know that he was likely an underachiever who held a series of menial or low-skilled jobs. He probably suffered with mental health issues, substance abuse, or had a criminal background and likely experienced some stress in his life in the fall of 1989. So listeners, if you are old enough to recall 1989, close your eyes and think back to people who you may have known at the time whose behavior had changed abruptly. They found religion, began always missing work, or suddenly developed excessive drinking or drug use. If you need more tangible details, microfibers were found on Amy's body that tell us the vehicle she was in after her abduction had camel-colored interior. And Maggie, I love science for this. We know, they've narrowed it down, that camel-colored interior came from a General Motors car. So a Buick, Chevrolet, Pontiac, Cadillac that was made between 1975 and 1978. So Anthony and I obviously love Anything true crime, forensic files is something that we were addicted to for a while. We've watched all of those, but um, that kind of began my obsession. But I had no idea until we started watching those how much science can tell us. They can be like, this plastic was made at such and such factory and was sold at this Walmart between the days of this and this. So anybody that bought that plastic during that time could be like a suspect. And I had no idea that science can tell us all that and luckily it can especially in this case we also know that the perpetrator was between 25 and 35 years old in 1989 so this is someone born somewhere between 1954 and 1964 and we think he tried this trick before at least two additional girls in an area that's just south of bay village had received similar calls from a man hoping to prey upon young girls wanting nothing other than to celebrate their mothers okay so again i feel like we need to urge our children if something seems out of the ordinary you need to let someone know because i'm wondering in this situation did they let an adult know that they were receiving creepy phone calls from a stranger. Yes, because we know Amy is the one who had responded and these girls hadn't. My hope is that someone out there can finally help give Amy's family peace. My sleuth hounds, I want to close by telling you about a book and a concept called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. Long ago, DeBecker went on the Oprah Winfrey show to share this concept with the world. What he said is this, unfortunately, normally we view the fear we may feel at times as either silly or irrational. But what we need to realize is that fear is actually a gift. In this episode, DeBecker focused on what we, especially women, do in an effort to quote, be nice even in situations that give us the creeps. He tells the story on Oprah of a woman who was raped. Even from the beginning of the interaction, she was creeped out by the voice of the man who offered to help her carry her groceries, but she brushed it off as silliness. She did tell the man, no, thank you, but he persisted, even grabbing a bag from her hand, and she convinced herself that she was just misreading the situation. He was just really friendly. But her gut had been right. 
We need to listen to ourselves. Oprah responded to DeBecker's story with something profound that I think we all need to hear. I know that we've all heard no means no, but I think we tend to just associate that statement with instances of sexual assault and what Oprah says extends that statement. She said, quote, when you say no and you mean no, and the other person, regardless of whether it's a situation where the other person wants to attack you or a situation where somebody wants you to just change your opinion, what I learned from this show is that when you say no and the other person continues to say, no, 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 let me do it, or no, 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 it'll be okay, you should think immediately not, how do I make it nice or make it better, but immediately think, why is this person trying to control me? Because, and this is the part of Oprah's quote that I found most profound. Here's what she said. No is a complete sentence. What she means is that the word no, or that listening to your feelings of fear requires no justification. Don't just listen to the voices of those around you. Listen to that still small voice inside yourself. Anyone with information in Amy's case can call the following phone number, 440-871-1234. And as a reminder, it is fine to leave a tip anonymously. You can also call the FBI with tips at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.